Podcast. This is John. This is Blix. This is Trav. This is Rich. Welcome to the Tri-Tac Games Podcast. Your podcast of finding cute little aliens and killing them with bad patent medicine. Doctor, it hurts when I do this. Then don't do that! (laughs) This week we are talking about xenomedicine. Or, what kind of strange things can we find out on the fringe pass on all those alternate worlds, whether they be low tech, high tech, alternate physics, and even the super tech, how does medicine appear and get used out on the fringe pass? Uh, now this topic is good all for pretty much any game where you have to deal with worlds where things may not be exactly the way you're expecting, or when you're coming from a high tech culture to a low tech culture. So uh, it works for pretty much uh, incursion for uh, cloisters. It works for pretty much any uh, most of the games that uh, TriTech produces, and a lot of the games that are out there, especially post Holocaust games, where one group is high tech and they're trying to restore people back to something reasonable because Fringeworthy is a, is a post-apocalyptic game. It's just the apocalypse wasn't ours. Now I will have to apologize because I have a cold. So I may, you know, I may make occasional inappropriate noises. <laughs> oh, noes. How, how apropos. <laughs> well, such good timing for you to be sick. Yes. Yeah. The reason that this topic came up is because in uh, the Fringeworthy sourcebook, one of the roles that a Fringeworthy person and even your campaign can be set around is the idea of uh, being medical professionals and going out and uh, essentially bringing uh, health and well-being to the, uh, the universe. Uh, because there's a million, million worlds out there. Now, of course, you would be expected also to uh, per, you know, deal with trauma you know, situations where you're, you know, uh, there's fringe worthy, they're hurt, they need to be brought, uh, helped and brought back. You might need to do that. But most of the time, I, um, this is going to be something where you find a world that's in the middle of a, of, of, of a probably a crisis situation, a plague, um, uh, a, a biological, I'm sorry, a physiological hazard that needs to be dealt with, possibly people recovering from uh, an apocalypse of their own. They're, uh, some kind of a nuclear situation, biological holocaust, zombie holocaust, whatever it might be. Uh, and they need their biological and medical infrastructure rebuilt 
this is where you would, you know, these were the kinds of missions that your team would be set on. Uh, of course, you could also be just something that you do as part of a single character going out there as a medical professional and running face to face with ignorance, superstition, and harmful practices that are literally injuring, if not killing members of a community. Uh, and you might feel a, a, a impulse to do something about it. And we're going to talk about how, what, what you can do and how wise it is to do it. So, uh, looking over our notes, which I sent out, uh, the first thing we want to talk about is, you know, when you come out into a world, there's going to be a lot, uh, and, and to a people, there's a lot of things you need to evaluate as far as trying to, you know, trying to help them out, how to make their lives better. Because being a medical professional, that's what you're all about, is making people's lives better. So when you come into a uh, into a, a village or into uh, a culture of any kind, uh, what are kind of the, some of the things that you need to, uh, to to look into to see about? You know, these are the you know the, almost the, the slam dunk things that you can do to improve uh, uh, the the medical care and the uh, general health of a community. Uh, what do you got, Trav? Okay, if you're a modern day medical professional, a doctor or a nurse. You're going to know things about like radiation poisoning. Let's say there's, sake of example, a source of radium near a village and they're wondering why they're getting sick. A doctor or a nurse is going to see that and they're going, okay, that over there is bad. You need to get away from that or we need to remove it or throw it through the portal, whatever. Yeah. So removal of toxic materials or relocating the, let's say it's a big deposit of radium. You're going to need to tell these villagers, okay, that cave is bad. We need to move you away from here. Radiation's bad, okay? Okay. Oh, sorry. It's bad. I, I disrupted yeah. everything. I disrupted everything just <laughs> for that. Sorry. A lot of uh, radioactive materials uh, glow, and that would be a kind of material that would have a kind of a, a religious or a spiritual significance to a lot of people, especially primitives. So it'd be very likely that, an, uh, that a, a deposit of some kind like that might actually be shaped into to an idol or an object of worship and placed on an altar for everyone to come around and worship, getting them a nice dose at least once a week, especially the priests and the altar, uh, altar boys who might be servicing that thing might find themselves get uh you know having strange things happen to them as a result yeah lesions and break cellular breakdown yeah all these really good things yeah and so if you're gonna have to deal with and we we talked about this you're gonna have to deal with religious taboos like if they're gonna be seeing this as a religious artifact of some type even if it's just a cave oh the glowing cave you know it's showing you know that this that and the other you're going to have to try to convince these people of a PL's one or zero or two mentality. It's like, no, that cave is killing you. Are you wondering why you're coughing all the time? Or, you know, yeah, you need to be over there some. So, yeah, relocating the residents if, if the materials are not needed for health. You know, it's like, yeah, there's a the door. Go that way. 
there was something that always in medieval cultures, they're wondering why they get sick after a battle. Well, it's because, you know, people die and it gets into the water and the bloodstream and then it washes down river. That's what they always would say. Never drink downstream from a battlefield. So things like that, learning simple and, and you know, not eliminating into your water supply like... um what happens all the time, Trav, I mean, I, I have a pictures of where you have a well, and the well is not covered, and there's a cow standing right next to the well. The back side of the cow is right next to the well. This happened at Andersonville, where they had a stream going through the camp, and people were drinking downstream from everything that was being poured into it, and they wondered why people were dying in mass of dysentery. You got, you got to teach these people germ theory. Well, you don't necessarily have to teach them that. You can just simply say it's not good to mix poo with your drinking water. Put your latrines downstream. <laughs> My hometown, I won't name it because I don't want to get, but there was a lake and there was the area of town where all the rich people lived. And my mother-in-law was on the board. Well, my former mother-in-law, this would be my daughter's maternal grandmother, was on the board of trustees and got a hold of the DNR report. They were basically emptying the sewers from these rich people's houses. They didn't hook it up to like they, they did it right into the lake. And then they wonder why the fecal coliform level was so ungodly high. Where, like, if you fish, you didn't want to eat those fish. They told you, no. We, we still this problem with uh, Vancouver, B BC. There's, you know, Victoria, uh, 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 actually not Victoria, v Vancouver, v Victoria, uh, British Columbia. They still dump on their uh, sewage into into the Puget Sound. The, the Puget Sound? The Puget Sound, yeah. There's also a lot of beaches around there. There are beaches regularly uh, closed down for fecal coliform, either human or geese. Ugh, yeah. Green lawns are nothing more than a buffet, a buffet to a geese. So yeah, there's, they've, they, they actually they've uh, now gone back to getting rid of the uh, the nice green verge in the lake and letting it grow wild and grow trees because the geese don't like that, and that cuts down the amount of fecal coliform at the at least at the lake edge at lake edges. No, it, it was funny. My daughter a couple years ago went like water skiing and boating. And so she was fine. She was above the water and all that. She gets out of the boat onto the dock, and I guess the ladder on the dock was wonky, and it broke. And my daughter fell in all the way back into the water, and she's told me, Dad, I took four showers. I wasn't cleaning it up. I said, you were at Belleville Lake? What in the world? And so just, you know, it. I'm like, oh, God, it's, I didn't want to touch her. And she's like, I'm not poisoned now, Dad, and it took four showers because to this day, if you live in my hometown, it's still known that the, the lake even, oh, God, let's see, this DNR report came out 35 years ago? Yeah. And still, the townspeople are just kind of like, eh, we're not going swimming there. you know. So that's another thing. Don't eliminate with your water there. You know, Get a sewer system going. A sewer system and waste disposal is really, really important, and especially because most of the dangers we're talking about are invisible. 
You know, I mean, you look at murky water. Well, murky water is not bad for you. It just has sediment in it. Okay, it's the stuff that looks pure and clean, but is filled with uh, uh, bacteria and other types of things like that are the things that are going to make you sick. So you know, you have to convince people. And sometimes you have to do it on the sly. You actually have to go and say, we're just going to go and do this and, and don't tell them why. And, but you go ahead and dig sewers or you come in and you cover all their uh, – uh, uh, you, you put pumps into their uh, wells and cover their wells up so now nothing goes into the well. A lot of times as an explorer, I think you're going to have to do things for the benefit of the community and not really explain why other than to say, we're just going to make it easier for you to do this. Because we're just nice guys. Yeah. yeah. There, there are actually a lot of uh, industries, however, that rely on, well, waste products. The tanning industry, for one. Uh, until we actually got good commercial tanning, you know, uh, chemical tanning stuff, you use urine for tanning. I know, I'll tell you about Use urine for, for bleaching cotton. Yeah, for bleaching cotton. And you use human, human fecal material for, for tanning leather. Oh, no, this, uh, John is absolutely right. The Fullers, which was a very yeah. long profession, was using urine to clean cotton. Okay. Well, y- urine by itself is, is sterile. It's just what happens to it after it comes out and how it's treated. That's why I say a lot of these things are, are, are not bad in and of themselves. I mean, there's nothing wrong, you know, I mean, uh, with manure. I mean, we use it to fertilize our lawns. We use it to fertilize our gardens. Uh, unless you go out and you get morals from a side of a tree, uh, every mushroom you eat is was actually grown on a tray of uh, horse manure that was sterilized so that they could just pluck them out and just put them into a store and not have to worry about washing them. But until someone understood that this was the way to do it and to make them safe, uh, you know, it, it, they were a danger. Yeah, there's a great little story here in Seattle. There's a uh, park called uh, Steamworks Park. It's fairly famous. It's the old, no, Gasworks Park. It's the old gasification plant that they, well, capped. Because they looked at it and said, it's a super fun site, but if we cap it, it'd be just fine. Uh, all the all that ke- nasty chemicals would be buried and never come out. But they put, but they decided to fertilize it with uh, human waste from the local sewage system. So the so middle of the summer, they have bumper crowd of tomato plants. Because it wasn't sterilized and processed, it was more or less straight uh, straight from the uh, sewage plant. And tomato seeds, they survive the digestive tract. They sure do. We had fields of tomatoes <laughs> up here where uh, the city of Pontiac just dumped the old, uh, the, I guess, the processed sewage and bulldozed it across the ground, and there were cherry tomatoes everywhere. Wow. Those wouldn't be helpful to, to uh, harvest, right? Oh, sure. Because they sterilized the waste, and they they dumped, and they basically, it grew. But nobody, of course, would touch them. No, the ones at the Gasworks Park would not be safe, because they would the roots would go deep enough to get past the cap and start bringing up all the lead, and yeah. so they would not be safe to eat. So we were talking about proper food handling techniques. So I mentioned earlier about washing your hands when handling raw meat. Oh, not just washing your hands, using different platforms for different food process. If I'm going to work on chicken, I have a chicken board. All I do on it is chicken. If I'm going to do other kinds of meat, I have a different board for that. You know, 50 years back, 
yeah, you'd want to do that because there's stuff in the chicken, there's stuff on there, and it, you know, there's stuff in the eggs. You don't want mixing with anything else. So yeah, you really want to have separate places to, to work with different kinds of meat. Yeah, if the butcher is using the same board for everything, uh, I make sure I cook my meat, all my steaks, well done. Yeah. At that point, all my chicken till they're dry as a bone, my pork till it's dry as a bone, because otherwise, I yeah, trichinosis, salmonella. That's very rare now. Right, and the reason the trichinosis is rare was because originally at the slaughterhouses they would feed pigs. Uh, pieces of other pigs that were infected with trichinosis. And so they would get the trichinosis and it would go into their bodies. They passed a law back in the 50s and 60s that said you can only serve cooked garbage to the pigs. And when that happened, it, it, it dropped by 95% overnight. Now there's a little bit of controversy about, about the United States, we wash our eggs. Uh, but you go to Britain, they don't wash the eggs. In fact, they said washing eggs is actually bad. Uh, just don't worry about it. Just leave it out. You know, you can you can put the eggs at your table, leave them out in, at room temperature. They're just fine. Because if you wash them, you actually uh, damage the shell a little bit. Now now it becomes now it actually is more likely to uh, let bacteria through than if you didn't wash it. So you have to keep refrigerated in the United States. So yeah, if you go if you get farm fresh eggs that you know were pooped that morning and they weren't washed, don't worry about them. Just leave them on the, ta- on the uh, 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 refrigerator. They'll be perfectly fine for two weeks. Well, I was watching an episode of Doomsday Preppers and I saw something rather surprising, and that was this woman who considered herself to be a foodie, a big uh, connoisseur. Uh, she w- what she would do is that she would take eggs. And you know, using gloves to keep her hands sterile, she would put mineral oil, oil around the eggs and put them back in their cartons. And she said that those would keep for up to eight months in a cool, dry place because of the uh, of the extra barrier to oxygen that the uh, mineral oil would provide. And she you know, showed you know, nine months later she was feeding uh, uh, deviled eggs and all kinds of things to her neighbors, and everybody was fine. So it's uh, eggs are a lot more uh, safe at room temperature than you might think. Yeah, properly taken care of. But I mean, as you said, the biggest the biggest problem with food preparation is contamination of other foods. So you know, and I can understand why people in the 1900s were like, you know, we want to be pure vegetarians because uh, if you if you didn't handle. Uh, meats well, then you'd probably take it over and, and, and mix it in with your otherwise healthful vegetables and <laughs> cause problems. Or again, you'd have the problem where your water supply wouldn't be safe and you'd wash your vegetables in your water and contaminate your vegetables. So a lot of times just taking something off a vine and eating it is probably the safest way of, of, of consuming food. We can get more insidious than that because it happened to me. I I, I, go to, I I cook with some friends and so forth, and one time I forgot and put my hand back into the seasoning jar. We had to throw the seasoning out at that that point. But yeah, you think about you know medieval cooks or you know even cooks of, of my mom's age back in the thirties and twenties would think nothing of rubbing salt on the pork, reach in there and get some more salt and rub some more salt on. If you can develop a, an attitude of trust between your explorers and the people you're talking to, you can show them all kinds of 
of simple techniques that will improve the health and reduce the amount of sickness in their community by a, a major – I mean, you could literally decimate the, the disease numbers in your community just by proper handling of food and by keeping, you know, uh, pro, uh, products of elimination away from the food that you're preparing. At least teach them how to make septic septic tanks, or or, or at least some place to, to store their sewage, so they can then use it later for their feed. Right, because a lot of animals, you know, any sicknesses that those animals might have, a lot of them are not going to transmit over to human beings. It's the human being waste that makes other human beings the most sick. So if we move on to like proper food cooking and water purification, so you know that's all part of the things that we've learned over the you know the last. I don't know, millennia, millennia, you know, where, uh, no, you know, cooking food, storing the food after we cook it or before we cook it. Um, didn't, uh, didn't they, uh, John, didn't they used to, uh, line the inside of grain pits with manure to try to keep it waterproof? Uh, mud, manure, it depends on the culture. Some cultures would use lime and you know, a lime paste and make, a, and make a plaster and, and line the walls. It really depends on the culture. Um, not everyone used manure because uh, there, there was at least enough brains in their heads to realize manure and food really should not go together. Uh, but but no, but more often than not, it would be uh, a quick lime or a lime paste of some sort, and then it would plaster the sides and make it try and make them watertight. Uh, didn't work. That's that's why that's why we have beer because someone let the let the let the grains get wet and and malt and ferment naturally. <laughs> Blix, uh, is it easy to create a uh, a water purifier, or does that take some kind of high tech stuff? Oh no, that's easy. As a matter of fact, they um, one of the things that they've done recently. Uh, and it dep- uh, uh, let me let me rewind that. It depends on what you're talking about water purifying. If you're talking about just being able to drink water out of like a pond or what like a puddle that's that hasn't been polluted with something like uh, petroleum or something like that, uh, just natural like bacteria and stuff. Yes, they actually have straws now that they um, they use over in you know Africa and South America. Uh, I think the Bill Gates Foundation discovered this or, or built this, came up came up with this idea and and, and made them happen. Um, but you can literally just stick the straw in, in muddy contaminated, you know, biologically contaminated water and drink right through the straw. Okay. It's very low tech. It's very cheap. It's, um, I, I think the straws are like 10 cents a piece or okay. something like that. Yeah. But you can't, you can't cook with the, you can't cook that way though. You need the cooking requires usually more water than right. that. Oh, sure. Sure. No, no. There's a wonderful, wonderful TV series, which I just recently finished two seasons of, called The Colony, about dumping people into hostile post-Holocaust environments and seeing how they survive. Kind of a TV reality show. And they, the water filters are charcoal and sand, and it works perfectly. And you can scale that up, John. I mean, yeah, you said that's not enough to cook with, but... Uh, that's with a straw. I mean, you could you could have a a container like a like a bucket or something like that that would you know yeah just a barrel right and with a lid maybe maybe it's built into the lid and as you dump water into the barrel through the lid uh, it purifies the water as it trickles down through the through the filter. So yeah, it's it's not uh, it's not that hard to purify water. Because I'm looking for something that I can, you know, that they can themselves make themselves. They can't make the straws, but they can- well, they could make this. 
oh dude they they could make this themselves like 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 um richard said it's just charcoal and sand right and and charcoal is just burnt wood that that isn't fully consumed um i i recently have a um a little video that i bought for 50 cents at a church bazaar it was called the doomsday water filter and it was uh uh, pumice rock you know because it's porous and uh and it had uh uh, and on top of that was sand, and they also had charcoal, which was from a fire. And then on the very top of it, he put uh, sawgrass, you know, just just um, you know, this piled up thick. And you just pour water through the top down to the bottom, and it comes out perfectly clean and safe. Even even if it was from a biologically hazardous, um, you know, source to begin with. Now, now this isn't going to help you from any kind of like radiation or, or, uh, you know, like I don't, I don't think it's going to help you against anything like petroleum. Probably not. Uh, it has to do with the molecule size. Like bacteria is actually a pretty decent sized molecule. How about, uh, heavy metals? Mm, probably not. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, at that point I would figure out a way to, to teach them how to make a solar dis- distillation system. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, and you, it, doesn't, it doesn't need glass. It just needs some, something that can get the water hot enough so it starts evaporating. So you can paint it black or coat it in black, something black like ashes or, or make a paste of uh, ashes to make it darker in color so that it heats up in the sun and evaporates the water. Now, the trouble is, it's really slow production. So you, you either have to make a bunch of them. Or you you try to figure out some way of to like concentrating the sun, which then you know gets more high, high tech. But there are ways around that. If you can just if you can do distillation, you can get rid of the heavy metals. Well, a lot of times, John, it's not really a matter of that because you know the only water you really need to do this to, unless it's radioactive, is the water you drink. I mean, washing water doesn't matter if it's got heavy metals in it and things like that. So. Uh, if you were to set up a good rainfall collection system, you'd probably be able to collect more than enough water in a community to provide those critical needs. Oh, this is something I saw, and I don't know if they ever brought them back or not, but you, you know that the Atacama Desert is one of the most driest places in the world. But but along the coastline of, of, the, of the desert, uh, there's, this, uh, there's these morning fogs that form. But they basically go away. They more or less evaporate. Some guys decided, let's see if we can catch that fog. And they made this net system that basically allowed, gave a place for the fog to condense. And they were catching, catching water from the fog. They were basically fog farming and getting water and lots of water from that fog. And uh, I don't remember if it got any farther than that, but it's, it's a, it was a neat idea. And that's something you could probably do in some locations is capture the is capture the capture water from the air as a, in the in the morning when you usually you don't normally get uh, condensation forming and fogs. Yeah, redwoods get half of their um, water from the air itself. Their root systems can't possibly draw all the water it needs, so they get half of it. And we're talking about the huge three hundred tall foot tall redwoods. Um, I but they only grow in areas where there's a vapor layer, where there's a lot of like a fog layer that happens every day, and that's how they're able to get it too, using the same concept. So it just kind of depends on what the resources are in the community in which you're trying to go and help these people out at. 
All right, so let's move on to nutrition. You know, the four food groups that we, we learn about in like grade school, that's like, revol that's, that's like revolutionary information to a lot of people out there. You mean chocolate, grease, salt, and sugar? Yes, yes. those four. Those four, what? yeah. That's you forgot fucking. beer and pizza. Alcohol. <laughs> and pizza is just a combination there of some of the food groups, grease and, you know, grease and uh, meat. You got to throw in meat. <laughs> hey, look, there is some vital stuff in beer. I mean, A, it's mostly water. Okay, that's eight glasses of water a day, eight beers a day. Um, it's, <laughs> it's you know, setting up a distillery in in a in a community, a, a pruned community, might actually improve their general health. I was gonna say it's got yeast in it. We make we make bread out of yeast. Oh, uh, actually, it's got it's got it's basically it's liquid bread. Yes, yeah. sir. That's right. Dad is great. Made a chocolate cake. Yeah. So look, man. So if you if you. If you have beer and bacon, you got yourself a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, the spent spent grains, yeah. Yeah, especially for uh, in in the area of prenatal nutrition and early nutrition for children. Uh, oh yeah. Getting getting you know an actual you know fruits and vegetables and uh, keeping their you know, getting things in the right proportion into their bodies can make a huge difference in their mental growth. One reason why the uh, uh, people in Japan uh, are get taller, well, I think they pretty much caught up to the rest of us, but they literally gained about a foot uh, uh, after World War uh, One and Two uh, because of the changes in nutrition that they learned about from the West. I'll tell you when uh, Eric was uh, was in his mother's belly, uh, there was nothing more important than making sure that she had a good diet and she took those uh, those prenatal vitamins. You know, and he he came out and he was a one hundred percent percentile baby. No, oh. so I mean, and I'd like to lay claim to that, but I really think it was just good medicine and and, and good prenatal care. <laughs> Okay, I'll just point out one thing: you actually don't need meat in your diet. You just need to actually have sources, at least two sources of protein, uh, plant protein, because they they can then form together into a whole protein uh, that you need. Uh, a great example is like uh, beans and corn. Uh, they basically will form a whole protein. Trouble is, they're a new world of you know, crops, and if you hadn't been going to an alternate world that's in, say, Africa, that ain't going to do it, you need to find the local plants there that provide the two two proteins. Hey, John, yeah, yeah, but you know what? Uh, beans and rice will do it, um, and lentils. Okay, lentils are new world, are old world, but beans, as we know them, are all, are all new world. I, I get it, and that's why I went to lentils. Lentils, lentils serve the function of beans. They carry those amino acids, and then your rice carries the other half of the amino acids. You got yourself a complete protein there. Or nuts, nuts are, are, are got protein in them. So yeah, you got to make sure you know that they. Because hate to say this, at, so at one point the the average, the, the at least in the early arch, arch, early days of our agriculture, uh, it was basically having a bowl of malt meal. And if you're lucky, you got some salt to put into it. No milk, mm. no sugar. Yum! Porridge every day um, <sighs> for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Yeah, and there's lots and lots of foods that we eat commonly now that were at one time considered to be poisonous. 
or not considered food at all? Tomatoes? Sure. Potatoes. Both, they're both in the deadly nightshade family. Was that they were cooking the leaves with the potatoes and they went back to England. They didn't know that the leaves were poisonous, the potatoes weren't. But you know, um, a lot of, what else is important is, depending on the timeline, is that there's a lot of food that we eat today that didn't exist back then, or at least didn't exist in that capacity. For example, uh, maize, the corn we eat today, you know, 400 years ago didn't look anything like what we ate. And there was only, I believe, only like eight varieties. And now we have like 200 and some varieties. I mean, don't quote me on those numbers. They're, they're off. But I'm saying it, it's something like that. Uh, broccoli is a relatively new invention to the, uh, to the human diet. Uh, at least what it looks like now. Uh, Brussels sprouts. Uh, I think broccoli, Brussels sprouts, and cauliflower all came from cabbage. Yeah, they're all variants of cabbage, yeah. Man-made. Apples are the same way. If you read up on the history of apples, the whole idea of grafting apple trees so that you could get an edible fruit out of it, I mean, that's amazing. Uh, Bananas. Um, Help me out, John, here. What, What else is new, like relatively new food? Well, uh, pineapples are the only member of its family which isn't poisonous. Okay, right. So, like, if you were an ancient, if you were, if you were going a modern person going back to ancient times, let's say you went back to Sumerian times, you may find and be like, I don't even know what to eat. You know, it's like you can eat that. What is that? And then you know, you might not recognize half the stuff that they're eating. Right. Or that you may you may tell them that that thing over there you might run to a people that are starving to death, surrounded by food, not realizing right. that it's food. As Americans, for because I know we we have people from, not from America listen to this show, but for from the American standpoint, um, there's a lot of things that we eat and a lot of things that we don't eat, uh, and there's a lot of things that are very edible that we don't eat that other cultures eat on a regular basis. Like we wouldn't. Most Americans, for the for the most part, would not look at a scorpion and go yummy. Uh, and there's a lot of most other cultures. Um, I would say most other cultures, as far as I know, eat insects on a regular basis, and we don't. So, like Bruce, when you're saying this, what triggered this? When you're saying that they're standing there starving, that's usually unlikely in the past. I mean, I know it happens. There are regions where it would happen, uh, but people used to eat a much more varied. They are not not varied. They would eat things that we don't eat today. So there's, a, you know, they would go dig up worms and eat them, or or dig up grubs and and be like, yeah, I have a whole plate of grubs tonight. Yum. They're still doing that. Yes. Well. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Talking about corn. I mean, the the, the, the basically the idea of having corn in the cob and eating it that way is very recent. For the most part, it was it, the corn kernels were hard, and, were small and hard, and they were basically ground up into a flour. Uh, they did have popcorn. They did. They did make popcorn. Uh, so that is actually something that's an ancient food. Is <laughs> popcorn? That was one of the only ways they could eat it. <laughs> well, no, the yep. majority way was 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 to, was to was to get them off the off the uh, off off the um, cob and grind them up into a powder. And basically, uh, serve it. And of course, that powder would be full of stone dust as well. So you can t- you can tell it from the from the dentition, lots of wear in the teeth from from that. Also, if you take the grains and you let them ferment uh, a little bit, you can make a, a thing called kitcha, which is um, corn beer. Of course, corn does not have any of the right uh, enzymes to properly you know ferment, but spit does. <sighs> 
They make a little ball to... Yep, they make a little ball in their mouth and spit in the pot. Make a ball in their mouth and spit in the pot. And then they would ferment. <laughs> well, in Africa, there's a, I, would, I just watched a program with Anthony Bourdain who went into the back, back, back villages that don't deal at all. And uh, the women do the work. The men go off and drink palm, uh, I guess, uh, palm beer. And because the stuff naturally ferments. And they, they love it. They, uh, that's all they do. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, it's right. uh, the, yeah, but but it comes to nutrition, basically, yeah, it's 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 if they're suffering from bad nutrition, it's probably because they've gone into a monoculture for for farming. I would say because that's normally what it what it happens in. Uh, that could be because well, drought, yeah. A lot of times this happens as a result of some kind of a cataclysm also. If, for example, they got dri- you know, you have you know, people city dwellers driven off into the countryside, they you know, they, they don't not know how to grow food or anything like that. They'll eat anything that they can find, but though they may end up eating poorly because they don't know that there are, you know, the dandelions, you know, the, the leaves on dandelions are edible and could provide lots of vitamin C. So so I'm saying that's why you, you a lot of times you run into these situations where you're not dealing with a, uh, a, a mature culture, a mature agricultural culture, but you're running into people who are in the middle of some kind of a, of a problem that they're trying to deal with. They're, they've been displaced or they're overcrowded and there's not enough of, of anything in particular and you – you know, you could look over the situation and say, how can I make the biggest difference as fast as possible and uh, bring in a big old uh, uh, number 10 can full of multivitamins can prob- could probably do more for a community than almost anything else that you could do, at least until they get to the point where – because then they could eat those um, – uh, they could eat those crackers or whatever it is that they're uh, – uh, those uh, corn pa- uh, patties – uh, or, or dollars, or whatever, you're, whatever you want to call them, tortillas, and uh, and and get all the new, and and get the vitamins they need in order to not come down with rickets and and scurvy and uh, all the other diseases caused by not getting enough vitamins. Berry, berry, I think is one. Of course, they also eat things that we look at and go, you eat that, like uh, Romans. Uh, and I'm not talking the rich Romans. I'm talking the, the, the people on the street Romans who would eat uh, lots of things. Uh, Romans made the first hamburgers. They ate a lot of bread. I mean, let's be honest, they had a bread-heavy diet in in Rome because that's basically had the grains coming from Egypt and from uh, other places. But they also had things such as when they made the hamburgers, they also would put them in, mix a little garum in them. And garum is more or less fermented fish paste. Hey, John, funny, fun fact. Richard, you can we, buy it. it you can, it's, also, it's also called Worcestershire sauce. Right, I was going to say, yeah, you could buy it anywhere. It's called Worcestershire sauce. Who's the Heistershire's? Uh, see, the, the Roman version uh, could be used as a paste. So, yeah, but the thing is, the fish they used, though, were, were, had lots of vitamins in them and lots of vitamin C. So that's, there's a reason why the Romans didn't actually get rickets, because they ate foods that we would normally would turn noses up at. But, hey, you know what else was you know what else is super important about garum? That's how most people in that time got their salt. 
Yes, they were br- the things were brined, and because it was brined uh, to get to, to make to make garum. Because at that time, salt was salt was hard to come by. I mean, the salt was actually used as a currency during that time. It was so hard to come by, but people needed it, and uh, a lot of times that's that's how people would would intake their salt. They didn't have salt shakers. One of my hobbies is collecting cookbooks, and I've collected several Roman cookbooks. Most of them are fragmentary, but they're finding more and more stuff out of Herculaneum. When they found, you know, the scrolls, and they're finally able to decode the scrolls. Yeah, I, we may actually have the same cookbook, because that's when I found the recipe for, for Roman hamburger in. A hamburger, you can have Roman hamburger. They had sausage on, them, sausage on bread. They had hot, you know, hot dogs and hamburgers. It's pretty amazing what they did have. I read the recipe for Roman sausages. You think sausage making today is scary? <laughs> yeah, I I don't know if I would eat it, but I might consider trying it and then a couple of good shots of something. Um, but uh, even the medieval cookbooks are actually surprising what they ate. The Romans were really hop, uh, really into basically roof rats, which weren't really rats; they were probably squirrels. And they would actually raise them on farms. Right. So, I mean, this, this sort of thing can be taken from one world you know, uh, to another world and introduced as a, as a practice or as a food source or uh, whatever and, and can really make a difference to when you have to see a specific hole in somebody's um, diet or uh, their, their practices as far as good, healthy food and water and whatever. So let's go over these last few things kind of quickly because uh, we want to get on to some other stuff here. Uh, so the other things I've listed under gen- uh, general health improvements are joint protection, um, I'm in, I work for the Arthritis Foundation, and we talk a lot about making sure that when you the, that you protect yourself from injury, because injuries cause people to become disabled, and a lot of times poorly treating those injuries is also what makes people disabled. Uh, and the whole area of sport medicine. Uh, that has developed in the last 30, 40 years is all about people who get injured and may, and bringing them back to actual as close to full capabilities before because because you know in, in the past you know someone get hurt you know you'd say oh walk it off or you know don't bother to strap that up or you know just just you know keep at it you know don't don't there was no protective gear. There was no uh, splints and supports unless it was really dire, like a, a seriously broken leg where you, you had to do that in order to walk. And as a result, people who otherwise would have been completely able to recover failed to do so and became a burden on the communities they were in and, of course, had very low lower uh, quality of life themselves. So a lot of very simple practices – of just you know how you lift things, uh, yeah. wearing braces, uh, and when you get injured, making sure that you continue to brace that area until it has a proper amount of time to heal is very important. Bruce, you brought that up about lifting and, and movement. You work for the Arthritis Foundation. You come at it from that angle. I work in an auto parts warehouse. I'm lifting everything from gas tanks to five-gallon drums, plus doing a lot of climbing on those lockdown step ladders. So I have to make sure that my joints are optimal. Well, I've been doing this job for 21 years and I'm 45. So, I mean, obviously, 
my job has taken its toll. But that Im- impels me even more to make sure that I lift with the knees and I don't bend over at the back. And if I'm carrying something, make sure I have a good grip on it and walking properly. All these, because a lot of these low tech cultures are going to be more physically oriented just by the nature of they don't have, you know, they're, you know, I have a high low at my, I can't drive a high low, a forklift, but that forklift is a lot easier than having, you know, like 12, 15 guys pull something on logs. So these lower tech cultures, they rely more on being physical, which means they have to be and maintain peak optimal physical condition. And the back braces, yes, we have to wear those. And um, it also says eye protection. Uh, Things like the lower tech societies, even um, because you have to make flint knives. Well, that means you're chipping away at flint to get the proper blade. Flint chips flying around can take an eye out. You got to be careful with that. At my job, I have to use eye protection in case of uh, battery acid. Hey, Trav. Trav, what's the term? PPE? Personal protection equipment. Yes. Matter of fact, I had to do some, uh, I had to do, uh, some um, schooling on that this afternoon before I left work. I had to go through videos and uh, recertify would be the word. So, yes, personal protective equipment. Things like, well, for my job, it would be like, Aprons, gloves, goggles. Uh, we do have the full body suits like uh, auto body people would wear in case we have to do a hazard. Because I deal with hazmat in my particular section. So eye protection, goggles. No, heck, those are in my section. The ones with the rubber strap on the back of the head. That's something else that could be introduced to these cultures. Saying, you know, you're dealing with, you know, this acid that you're etching. Let's say it's a medieval culture. You know, wearing these, you know, and this mask so you don't breathe in these fumes. And that's another one. Protecting your breathing, making sure you're not breathing in uh, bad stuff. Good, good ventilation. Yeah. Yes, that also. Yeah. Tanners the, were the worst on that, weren't they? What? Tanners, tanning. Oh, yeah. Hat makers. No, hat makers were the worst because they used mercury. A mercury fulminate in their in their uranium watch dial painters. Oh yeah, no radium radium watch dial painters. Well, yeah, that was a fairly small industry though. That that's why the phrase Mazza Hatter is 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 very common because yeah they use they use mercury in their in their uh, making hats, which also meant you were wearing mercury on your head. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. I'll tell you what, guys, I, I want up you, man. Mining, because mining, you know, coal mining, well, any kind of mining, all kinds of mining has been around since forever. I mean, it's the, the lead mining. Mine. Well, lead well, mines. Lead mining. Yeah, but any mines. I mean, you 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 start digging in the ground, you you know, you could you could run into any kind of radioactive stuff. Um, you know, uranium, of course, and they wouldn't even know what that was. Uh, you can get radon gas. You can run into asbestos. That's a naturally occurring element in the soil. Um, there's all kinds of get poisonous gases you can breathe in. And then there's uh, something my grandfather died of, uh, black lung disease from working in the mines. And mining was, was rough. Oh, yeah. And, and really, it wouldn't have taken that much to make those mines safe. Ooh, well, it, 
there's some technology to that. I mean, for one, mines would flood easily, so they had to they had to have pumps that they would work and and pumping out the air to get ventilation. And the problem was is that um, the ventilation shafts, of course, didn't produce any. They they weren't used to produce any money, so they'd make the shafts small and they would stick kids in them. Um, and the the kids would would they'd work the shaft. I can't remember exactly what they had to do, but they would stay in the shaft. I think they worked the pump maybe. Um, and then, you know, people would be in these mines, especially kids for, you know, throughout the whole daylight hours working. And then they would get, you know, like we, we talked about before, you know, malnutrition and stuff. Well, they wouldn't get enough vitamin D. So then their bones wouldn't form properly. So there was, I mean, mines were rough on people, but they needed them. Actually, the mines were, were a reason a certain food product was created. The, the Cornish pasty. Uh, it was made with a really thick, uh, narrowed crust along the edge, and that's where the Myers would hold it with, with their dirty fingers. They'd eat everything mm-hmm. but the crust. <laughs> ah. And you know, an, another reason why another reason why you would need food that would that would last a long time is because when it took them so long to get down into the mine at certain points that they wouldn't come back out for lunch. Well, yeah. They would just stay down there all day. And like I was going to say, even in some Chinese mines to this day, because the, uh, some of the Chinese mines are not up to, you know, American – well, first – I don't even know what you're going to call for. I don't want to be politically incorrect, but whatever. Uh, modern, sta- modern standards, they, they actually go down in the mines and they stay there all week because they have to go down so far and they work so many hours that they just stay there for the entire week in the darkness uh, I mean, they have artificial light, of course, uh, and this is even in modern times. The poles in, uh, in you know, the basically the poles in the salt mines, they had chapels and dormitories and everything, and that's several hundred years. That lunch is a recent invention, maybe only a couple hundred years old. Most often, people had a good breakfast and then they had a good dinner. They really didn't stop in the middle of the day for lunch. If any of you have heard the song by the police, Canary in a Coal Mine, there is a reason why they kept the canaries in the coal mines, because when the canary in the cage died, hey, look, we got to go. There's dangerous gases, like Blix mentioned. Time for us to head back up. They would actually have pet canaries in cages, and that was like their early warning system for bad stuff in the air. Yeah, uh, I've seen pictures of of Roman mines. They're hellholes. I mean, there. We think of mines as, as having these support beams and all that stuff. No, they just dug a ch- tunnel big enough you can crawl through through the mine because they couldn't dig it any bigger because they didn't realize you could brace the earth. Uh, it, it, great example is when they make it put a hole through a hill for an aqueduct. That's about the, that's about the biggest they can make a mine shaft as well. Ooh, because they didn't do bracing. So yeah, you do even more than that. You need to start. You need to do bracing. So yeah, the kids in those they were sent kids because they were small enough to fit. Okay. So when you did get injured, it was really it's really important that you also teach people how to properly care for an injury. Just like with the joint protection, uh, and uh, a an injury that's not properly treated will likely become infected and fester, which which if it doesn't kill the person outright or be, make them. Um, uh, damaged, they might actually have to uh, lop off the limb because it gets too infected. Uh, it's it's one of those things where soldiers uh, they learned you know uh, to uh, 
heat their their uh, swords and such knives up real hot and, and and apply that to wounds to to make them stop bleeding and to okay. stop, stop them from festering but you know there, it's tr- uh, teaching people that you don't just take water and just don't spit on your hand and rub it in the wound <laughs> to clean it off is probably a big uh, uh, something that can really help you know people who are in uh, jobs that are hazardous. Uh, also, wearing proper footwear is really important in jobs where there's a lot of physical danger. Not only that, but you also can carry more and further distances if your feet actually have proper support. I, I can vouch for that as well in my job because I am on my feet all day long, walking on a concrete floor and occasionally on grating. Now, I wear sneakers, but one, I have insoles in them, so my arch and heels are supported because my heels are kind of shot from, as I said, 21 years of my job. But also steel-toed sneakers, mind you, but they are steel-toed because I've dropped a five-gallon pail of oil on my foot. I've dropped a box of 10 road cones on my foot. Folks, it's not pleasant. Therefore, having the steel toes and the proper support underneath, all that stuff works as I said, I, I can yeah I can imagine people in a medieval culture all walking around with Wolverine boots on, but you know it, it's but yeah proper footwear does count and also traction because slipping and falling let's say you're doing something and you slip you know you could hurt yourself that way too, so that's another reason to have proper footwear with good treading on the bottom. That's exactly why my back has six scars and is um, now made out of Bondo and super glue. I slid across the slippery floor and broke my back. And uh, that's how they fix it now. Yeah, we're talking also proper care of wounds. Uh, there's a scene in the movie Gladiator where, you know, he, Russell Crowe is about to pull the maggots out of his wound and the guy says, no, don't do that. They only eat the dead flesh. Well, that's that's exactly right. They only eat the dead flesh. There's a great story uh, during the Civil War. Uh, they had a bunch of um, um, it was an American uh, 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 Americans on the Union side. Don't say Americans on the Union side, and uh, they had a hospital where they kept both Union Union patients and uh, uh, Confederate patients. And the Union side, they were using all the latest modern stuff, and it smelled horrible. You go to the Confederate side. They were, they weren't getting much. They were just getting the barest in terms of, of medical care. It smelled okay. Turned out they were using maggots on a lot of their wounds to keep them clean. Yeah. So hey, hey, just real quick, just because our, our you know a lot of times we talk a lot of stuff and people are like, well, how do you guys know this stuff? Uh, I want to I want to give some references real quick. So uh, about the mining stuff, uh, that comes from a book I read called Coal: A Human History by. Barbara Freeze, uh, it's F-R-E-E-S-E. Uh, you can find out a lot of information on on diet, ancient diet from salt, a world history. Talks, you know, basically talks about how salt, and this this is great for any of you like fringeworthy, any old culture. You can, because um, salt was pivotal. I mean, we 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 absolutely it's an essential mineral in our diet, uh, and that's by Mark, and I'm going to spell it K-U-R-L-A-N-S-K-Y. And then if you want to learn about like how fruits and uh, vegetables um, uh, have, have evolved with us as a society, uh, there's a really good book called Botany of Desire, and that's by Michael Pollan. 
Uh, or you can just watch it live. If you go to YouTube and type in the Botany of Desire, uh, there's a uh, uh, an entire video. It's like an, uh, 116 minutes as I'm looking at it. Uh, it's a PBS special put together. You can basically get get this get the uh, the gist of the book. But there's a three really good sources you can read about ancient diets and 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 of course the one with Cole. Cole that that Cole one was super awesome. Yep, and, if, and about the maggots in our favorite source. The font of all knowledge, Wikipedia. Knowledge. <laughs> there, is, <laughs> there is a article on maggot therapy. Oh. Mm, that's my favorite. Talks all about it. <laughs> talks all about it, you know, and how it, and how it actually was reinduced several times into mar- into medicine. And I just threw up in my soul again. Oh. <laughs> hey. They're using leeches now to help people with reattached fingers because the leech you, it gives, it puts out a natural anticoagulant yeah. and helps promote the growth of, growth of capillaries. That too. Break out the leeches. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer. Saying, keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game, hate the players. This is Richard Tahoka. Wait, you see what's coming next. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at TriTech Games. And if you don't, we'll be after your sorry butts, cause we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.